Well, good morning, Bridge Church. So good to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, that's my city. That's the city that God's called us to, the city I love. Uh, before we dig into God's word this morning, I just want to share a few things about what God has called us to do. Uh, so if you could start the slide presentation. Uh, in the video, you heard us talking about training people and making disciples and kind of flipping the script on what it means to make disciples and start churches. The reality is, is that the need in Berlin is enormous. It's, it's much bigger than any one person or family or team or organization can accomplish. Uh, but the goal is, is just that. We, we need to start about 6,000 new churches. And uh, so we're, we're working very hard, collaborating with others to make disciples and uh, start new churches. Uh, so our family, yeah, we've been in Berlin six years Thank you for uh, walking with us, praying for us, partnering with us along the way. Uh, my wife, Miriam, sends greetings this morning. Uh, we have three boys, Ethan, Micah, and Jethro, 19, 16, and 12. And uh, yeah, I wish, wish they could be here this morning, uh, but they say hi from Madison. Uh, if you can go to the next slide, please. So my role in the city, our role uh, is varied. I, I do so many different things. I wear many different hats, but the common theme among everything, uh, among, all, among all that I do is in, in, it relates to this thing called disciple-making movements, making disciples who make disciples. Uh, so yeah, pray for us as we work to catalyze disciple-making movements among the different nations in Berlin. That's one of the unique features about the city is the geographic, the, the ethnic diversity, 190 plus nations. So we talk about the Great Commission. Well, God's brought the nations to us in Berlin. So that's, uh, that's one key thing. Next slide, please. So our, our work in making disciples, disciple-making movements gets fleshed out in a couple different arenas. Uh, I'm the co-founder of a training organization called Multiply Berlin. We've started a church planting network called Bread and Wine. And then I co-lead our organizational team, Novo Berlin. So again, a lot of different hats but all, all working uh, together for the same goal. Next slide, please. Uh, so the, the key thing about what we do is uh, making disciples is based on being obedient to Jesus. And uh, I want to ask you a question. Uh, when you think about generational growth, obedient disciples who make disciples, what's the goal in that? Well, the goal is, is multi-generational disciple making. So how many... How many generations can you find in this one verse from 2 Timothy 2.2? Any idea? Just shout it out. How many generations of disciples do you see? There are four. So Paul is writing, if you can go to the next slide, please. Paul is writing uh, to Timothy. So Paul's generation one. Timothy, his protege, his disciples, generation two. And Timothy is entrusted, uh, told to entrust the gospel to reliable people, generation three, who will then pass on that gospel to others, generation four. And I want to suggest to you that that is the pattern for disciple making that you and I need to operate with. Uh, we need to be invested, someone needs to be investing in us, and we need to be investing in others. But the key thing is, is when you reach four generations of disciples, it, it happens spontaneously, it happens on its own. So that's what we're shooting for in Berlin is fourth generation reproduction. Next slide, please. The other thing is obedience. Uh, oftentimes we forget this about the Great Commission. The Great Commission doesn't tell us to just teach the commands of Christ. We're actually taught to teach 
obedience to the commands of Christ. And there's a huge difference. If you were to uh, teach someone to drive and you were to verbally explain to them how to do that, that's a whole different ball of wax than actually sitting in the driver's seat with a new driver, sitting in the passenger seat with a new driver and actually going on the road and teaching them how to drive. Well, it's the same thing with disciple making. We can know that we need to make disciples and we can even talk about that with other people, but actually training someone to make disciples is a whole nother, uh, whole nother thing. And that's what we're trying to do in Berlin is teach obedience and teach uh, others to make disciples. Next slide. I'm going so fast here, guys. So there's so much more to share. I want to tell you one story about one of the successes that we've had, one of the successes God has had in, in Berlin the last couple years um, related to disciples, making disciples, making disciples. This is a young couple, uh, Tomas and Alex, uh, Alex is a young German woman that we trained uh, through Multiply Berlin. Uh, we taught her how to make disciples and start churches. And uh, she came home from our training and uh, she uh, began to put into practice what we taught her. So she, she made a relational network of all her contacts and began fasting and praying for that network. And the Holy Spirit highlighted one individual uh, that she was, felt compelled to share the gospel with. Young German atheist, she shares the gospel with this guy and this guy gives his life to Christ. It's incredible. And so she's texting me by WhatsApp, Eric, what do I do now? What happens next? And I'm instructing her, well, you need to baptize him. And she's like, I've never baptized anyone. How do I do that? So I'm writing through WhatsApp, well, yeah, this is what you do. Remember your training. Remember what you were taught to do. And so she, she challenged this new follower of Jesus to baptism. He didn't want to do it. And so I said, okay, pray for him. So she prays all winter. This is the fall of 2019, pre-pandemic. She prays all winter for this guy. In the meantime, she's discipling them. She's teaching him how to make a relational map of his contacts, and he begins fasting and praying for his friends. They begin to go on the streets, share the gospel uh, in Berlin, in, in and around Berlin. Uh, so he's already obeying Jesus from the, from the get-go. Fast forward to the pandemic, we're in lockdown, and uh, things totally shut down in the city, and I get a text from Alex, I just baptized my first follower. And at this baptism was this guy's friend. And the, the first follower of Jesus had been sharing the gospel with his friend, and he was at the baptism. And at the baptism, he wants to give his life to Christ. And so Alex is now texting me, what do I do with the second guy? Do, do, do I baptize him or does, who, who, who baptizes the second guy? I said, no, Alex, you need to train your first follower to baptize his friend. And so she trained and equipped this guy, and uh, he baptizes his friend. Fast forward uh, in 2020, Alex, Alex, independently of these two guys, she, she baptizes uh, six other new followers of Jesus. And it's just incredible to see what one person who's obedient to the words of Jesus, what can happen, even in a place like Berlin, one of the, the most secular post-Christian places on the planet. So if you can fast forward the, the slide ah, yes. here. Here's one of the baptisms. <laughs> oh, wie süß. Okay, es nimmt auf. Isn't that awesome? Uh, you, can, you can stop the video there. So the, the, the woman at the, in the foreground of that scene raising her hands is the woman at the far end of our kitchen table here. Uh, this, this is uh, one of the women that Alex uh, brought to Christ and baptized in 2020. Her name is Suki, 
And Suki grew up in East Berlin, communist East Berlin, uh, totally far from God. I mean, as far as you can imagine, lived and did everything under the sun to try to find meaning in life, couldn't find it. She meets Jesus through Alex's testimony, gives her life to Jesus, and the, there's now a new church plant that's gathered up around Suki's transformed life, and it's incredible. I, I was able to uh, officiate the, the marriage ceremony of Alex and Tomas in September 2020, and at the wedding reception, I was able to sit next to Suki, and this, this, this would be about four weeks after she gave her life to Christ. So she's a brand new baby Christian. And Alex and Tomas gave her a platform at the ceremony, at the, uh, the reception, to share her testimony. And she gave the most powerful testimony that I have ever heard, in the, in the top three at least, powerful testimonies I have ever heard, to God's transforming power through Christ. And that the maturity I saw in Suki is incredible. I mean, I, as a pastor, I've pastored people for multiple years that didn't show the, the same kind of maturity as Suki as a four-week-old believer. And that, that was because she was already obeying Jesus. She was saying things like, Eric, I just want to go out on the streets of Berlin and tell people about Jesus. And, and Alex had already equipped her to do that. It was really really cool. So there's some really good stuff happening in Berlin, uh, especially around Alex and Tomas and their network of new disciples and, and small church plants that are starting to crop up around the city. So keep, keep praying your prayers. God is answering your prayer. God is doing something special in this city. Next slide, please. So in terms of prayer, like what do we need? Well, we're getting ready to, to head back for a second term uh, next summer. Uh, and we need prayers. Uh, Berlin is a very difficult place to serve. Uh, it's a very dark city. And uh, so we, we covet your prayers uh, sustaining us on the field. Uh, we need laborers. Uh, we can't do this huge vision of 6,000 churches by ourselves. So we're, we're praying Luke 10-2 for the Lord of the harvest to, to bring more workers to the city. Uh, we have a new internship program as a pathway into the city. So if you know any post-college age students who are looking for a gap year experience, we'd, I'd love to talk to you or connect me to them about Berlin X, our, our internship program. Uh, I, I, we need off, uh, uh, office space and admin help, so you can pray for that. And our financial support is a little bit under, so pray that God brings that up to uh, full support by the time we launch for our second term. So yeah, that's, that's in a nutshell the prayer request. Thank you again for your support. All right, enough about Berlin. Let's, uh, let's transition to the text this morning. And uh, before we do that, let me, just, let me just pray and focus our time here. Father, we just thank you for a chance to open your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for the truth that is expressed in the text that we're going to look at. Holy Spirit, we invite you to illumine our minds, to give us understanding. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Guide us further us to be faithful followers of Jesus wherever, wherever you have planted us. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, we live in some crazy times, huh? I mean, this, uh, coming back to the States, it's kind of like, what country have we come back to? Uh, it seems like this world has come unhinged uh, 
So I want everybody this morning to just take a deep breath. Just uh, breathe in, breathe out. Uh, let's remember that God is still on the throne. Uh, Psalm 93, God still reigns. He never changes. Amen? He never changes. It is incredibly comforting to think about that God never changes despite the things that change so quickly around us. That's my rock. That's my anchor. Now, here's the question. What if things don't get better? This, uh, whatever this is right now, this life that we're experiencing, what if this is, and I hate this term, but what if this is the new normal? What if things never go back to the way they were before? And I'm not just talking about the pandemic. Uh, I'm talking about the social upheaval, the loss of truth, the politicization of every aspect of life. What if those things and the disequilibrium that that produces, what if that never changes and that's the new normal? Well, I want to suggest to you that that feeling of disorientation, the kind of feeling you get like when you're on a boat that's constantly rocking, that's what we feel almost every day living in Berlin. Those feelings are the hallmarks of living in an increasingly secular society. That's the mark of secularism. And so here's the thing. The, the mission of God to reconcile the nations to himself through Christ, that doesn't stop just because you and I can't get our bearings, can't get our sea legs. So how does the mission of God move forward in an increasingly secular age? Well, we've spent the last six, six years in one of the most secular places on the planet. Uh, so my hope is this morning that some of the things that we have learned, I can pass on to you to help you get your sea legs in an increasingly secular environment here. So here's the big idea for this morning. This is a big idea from the, the text that we're going to look at. Secular people desperately need to see Christ's superiority over every power, including the supernatural unseen powers. That's the biggest thing I've learned being in Berlin. People need to see the supremacy of Christ in all areas of life. He is king and he reigns supreme over everything. So a brief definition of terms before we dig into the text. What do I mean when I use this word secular? What, what, what's, what is the definition? Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean earthly activities that aren't sacred. That's not what I mean. I don't mean the sacred-secular divide, okay? Nor do I mean the emptying of God from the public sphere of life. I don't mean that. What I do mean when I use the term secular is this. It's secular societies are places where belief is one option among many. That's what it means to live in a secular society. So this one guy I've been reading, his name's Charles Taylor, he described it like this. He said, the shift to secularity in this sense consists of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. 
That's what it means to live in a secular society. And I want to suggest to you that we need to figure out how to live in an increasingly secular society here where Christianity is no longer has the, the privileged role in shaping society, where there are now many, many, many different options that people give belief to. And as a result, people are very spiritual in a, in a secular society, but they cobble their, their, their spirituality together from a whole host of different areas. Uh, it's not uncommon for people living in secular societies to, for instance, wear a cross, keep a Buddhist statue in their bedroom, consult the spiritist for life decisions, engage in sexual relations with a variety of people, sometimes not even the same gender, uh, attend church on a Sunday morning, claim Jesus as their savior, but believe in reincarnation. Like, that's a, po that's a possibility in a secular society where people kind of put together their own sense of what it means to believe in stuff. And all of that, living in that, produces a sense of cultural vertigo for us as Christians. And I want to suggest to you, though, that the, 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 the answer for us as followers of Jesus in response to an increasingly secular society, the answer is not to make everything in society sacred again. Uh, it's it's not the restoration of a lost political witness. What's needed is a rediscovery and an application of the power of God expressed through the kingdom of God in everyday life. Secular people who cobble together all these religious ex spiritual experiences, they need to see from you and me Christianity as they need to see a lived reality, Christ in us, supreme over everything, and not Christianity just as a set of beliefs that we assent to. They need to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why this text is important. So if you have your Bibles with you, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. I want to read this text to you. This text uh, describes in two different scenes uh, the dramatic deliverance of a, a demonized man and the kingdom of God coming in power. So Mark 5, we're going to read through uh, verse 20, and please follow along as I, as I set the scene for you. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often, often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out, of, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? 
And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What a crazy, crazy text. So why this morning, why this passage about a crazed demoniac? What in the world does this text have to do with living in a secular age? Well, before the worship of Caesar in the first century, the the world of the New Testament was actually very similar to the world that we live in now, very pluralistic, uh, actually more similar than dissimilar. Uh, Contextually speaking, uh, there were many different ways to express belief in the ancient world. And in that context, it was paramount that Jesus was proclaimed as superior to all those options. And that's what makes this text and the world of the New Testament relevant for us now. It's the same world. So that's one of the reasons I chose this text, because it, it's, it's instructive for us in terms of worldview. The other reason I chose this text this morning is because, uh, frankly, it probably makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, we're comfortable with this text firmly set in the world of the New Testament uh, and as part of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, But the moment we take this episode and we move it from the first century into our world now, we likely get a little bit like, okay. Uh, And it's very likely that we become uncomfortable when we think about this text now because you and I are probably more secular than we realize. See, it's likely that we have a preconceived idea about this text that's a lot like a tree stump. So uh, you guys know this as a Box elder bug is crawling on my Bible. Uh, have any of you ever removed a tree stump before? They're pains in the butt, aren't they? Well, worldviews are like tree stumps. They're there, they're under the surface, they exist, and pulling them out if they, we have incorrect worldviews about something is really, really hard to do. So my prayer this morning is that God uses this text to root out uh, any last vestiges of a secular worldview that you and I might be holding on. So secular people, again, secular people desperately need to see Christ's superiority. Let's look at the first scene now, this verses 1 through 13. Uh, and this is the, the first scene uh, in the text. Our, our response to this, these verses, this story, our response to Christ's superiority over the unseen realm 
probably reveals the degree of our own secularity. That's the first thing I want you to take away from this text. If we're honest with uh, each other, we're likely more secular than we realize, and our worldview is different than Jesus' worldview. For Jesus, all of life was spiritual and not just in a religious sense. Uh, for, for Jesus and his worldview, uh, it's normal for crazed men to live in tombs and for these men to bust through chains and to, you know, for, for herds of pigs to rush headlong into the water and for there to be encounters with the demonic and this, this cosmic conflict with the supernatural realm. I mean, that's, that's normal everyday life for Jesus. Christ came proclaiming the kingdom of God and the implications for the immaterial crashing into the material world was like, that's normal for him. So look at the text. Uh, in this text, we see Jesus' limitless authority and power. It's one of the themes of Mark's gospel. Uh, there's a number of verses I could take you to to, to show you that. Uh, and as we pick up the story in Mark 5, Jesus and his disciples kind of land on the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they, they wander into this Gentile region of Israel. We know that because there's herds of pigs. Jews would not keep herds of pigs. And, and Jesus and his entourage meets this, this man, this, this man who's living in the tombs. And Mark goes to great lengths to describe this man's condition, the, the, the isolation, the ostracization from society, the nakedness, the pigs, the chains, the blood, the uncleanness. The situation Mark is trying to make, the situation is about as unclean and shameful uh, a posture from this man as could possibly be imagined. Nothing could control this restless soul he is this pawn in this cosmic spiritual battle. In verse 6, he meets Christ. Look at the text. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. This man filled with the maximum concentration of demons, legion, he knows who's boss right away. And there's a hardly a higher, more authoritative title than the demon could give Jesus than the one he gives him. Jesus, son of the most high God. If there is a phrase that you would use to call a man God, this is it. Legion, this man begs permission for the demons to be sent into a herd of pigs. They know who's boss. Jesus is in complete control, isn't he? Complete control. And it's, it's important for us to consider how Jesus viewed this episode. See, Jesus saw exorcisms, things, demonic deliverance, things like this, as the, the defeat of Satan. This is how Christ saw this episode. In other words, Christ saw his these demonic deliverances, not so much as, as a cure from, from some kind of physical ailment or mental illness, but he saw these episodes as the, the resting 
of particular individuals from, and personalities from the grip and influence of the dominating influence of Satan. And, and as, we, as we read this text with Jesus as the hero of the story, which he is, and as we kind of cheer him on from a distance, go Jesus, get him! We recognize Christ's authority in this story, as we should. But as our gaze slowly shifts from the ancient world of the New Testament to this world here and now, the possibility of something like this happening now is sometimes explained away by our theology, perhaps, or our understanding of modern medicine and psychological illnesses or our desire for a sanitized, safe Christianity. And without even realizing it, you and I demythologize Scripture, and we stripped Christ of the power and authority that he deserves, without even realizing it. And this handicaps us when we seek to push forward the mission of Jesus in a secular age. Please hear me. My point this morning is not to make a case for demonic deliverance, although I'm not in disagreement with that. My point this morning is to hold this text up in front of us as a mirror to help us evaluate our worldview. You and I are likely more secular than we realize. Let me see if I can illustrate and unpack this a bit. If you can go to the next slide, please. Or maybe you're already there. Previous slide, you're already there. So in, in 1982, uh, a missiologist and free church guy, he was at the free church seminary when I was there. Uh, 1982, Paul Hebert, uh, he wrote an article entitled The Flaw of the Excluded Middle. Absolutely brilliant from a missions point of view. And as a young missionary, Paul Hebert went to India and is, in his own words, he, he, he said this. He said, as a Westerner, I was used to presenting Christ on the basis of rational arguments, not by evidences of his power or in the lives... Uh, sorry, I was used to presenting Christ on the basis of rational arguments, not by the evidences of power in the lives of people who were sick, possessed, and destitute. In particular, the confrontation with spirits that appeared so natural a part of Christ's ministry belonged, in my mind, to a separate world of the miraculous, far from everyday experience, end quote. And so Paul Hebert in this article describes uh, a modern view of the world that you and I have likely bought into, and it's the one up here on the screen. We don't deny the reality of the supernatural. We probably agree that it exists, but we live in the material world and the interaction between the spiritual and the material doesn't happen for us. There's an excluded middle where the supernatural is not free to enter in. And that's what, what, what Hebert was experiencing. When he went overseas as a missionary, he saw people who believed in a spiritual supernatural world, but that invaded their everyday life. And as a Western missionary, Hebert was not used to having the supernatural invade everyday life, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to interact with people. And I want to suggest to you that that's, that's kind of what we do now. We've adopted this two-tiered view of, 
of reality where the, where the, the spiritual, the supernatural, and the material don't mix. See, we're, we're products of the Enlightenment. Uh, we've bought into this mechanical, deterministic view of the world that prevents us from interpreting ordinary, everyday experiences from a spiritual point of view. That's the excluded middle. And I want to suggest to you that if we're to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples in a secular society, we have to see the supernatural invade this excluded middle. See, if we persist with this spiritual material divide as we view the world, a worldview that's very different than the worldview of Jesus, if that's the way we operate, the end result is that you and I will be contributing to the secular world in ways that we didn't even realize. In other words, by denying the supernatural, you and I make the world more secular. We contribute to the secularism that we're frustrated about. See, I think we, we, we render ourselves impotent. Uh, we make ourselves practical atheists when we fail to let the supernatural invade everyday life. You and I, without even realizing it, potentially are the greatest secularizing force in history. Christians, Westerners. And the reality is, is that this world is a supernatural world. We live in a supernatural world. Things like the demonic are real. Christ is supreme over all of it. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Christ is supreme over all. In Colossians 2, Christ defeated these powers on the cross. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. This world can't be neatly carved up into these realms, material, immaterial, natural, supernatural, with them never mixing. It's your job, it's my job to pray and to ask the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. One of the things that has surprised me about living in Berlin, this post-Christian secular environment, is how shockingly spiritual it is. If you can go to the next slide, please. This is a, this is a cover of a 2018 magazine that's circulated in, in Berlin. Uh, and, the, and the title, I don't know if you can read the title, the title declares um, you know, the, the occult is back. The occult is back. You know, I walk down the streets of Berlin in this place where people, they don't even acknowledge the reality of the supernatural. They only believe in the material. That being said, Berlin is like, there's yoga shops everywhere I go. There's Buddhist statues in people's windows. Um, you know, it's, Berlin is a pluralist, secular society, but it's super, super spiritual. It's actually very similar to Paul in, in Athens when he walks down the streets of Athens and he says, there's a God. There's a marker for this guy. And there's a God. You even have an idol for an unknown God. 
Like it's that same way in secular Berlin. See, in secular societies where Christianity is just one option among many and a particularly unattractive option at that, what's needed are ambassadors for Christ who present Christ not solely on the basis of rational arguments, but with a demonstration of the kingdom's power, the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, showing that Christ is supreme, he reigns and is powerful over all. Rational arguments alone won't cut it in Berlin. If I try to convince someone of the the truth claims of Jesus with rational arguments alone, it's not going to work. They need to see a demonstration of Christ's supremacy over everything, every spirituality in their life. What's needed is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he writes, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So you and I are probably more secular than we realize. I know I am. And so what I've learned in Berlin is that as I walk the streets, I need to be an embodiment of the kingdom of God, proclaiming and demonstrating Christ's superiority over every power, over every authority, seen and unseen. He is supreme. He reigns. He's defeated everything. He's the only one who deserves preeminent position as Lord and Savior and King. That's what secular people need. They need to see that. I want to show you the second thing they need to see. It's from verses 14 through 20. Christ's superiority over unseen powers does something. It yields fruitful mission because it produces a faith that rests on the power of God. The other other reason I chose this text this morning is because as a missionary, this passage contains one of the most beautiful mission responses to the power and authority of Christ in the entire New Testament. Christ delivers this man from the demonic, from this deep internal shame that he has, and he immediately commissions the man to be on mission. Immediate obedience. And I want to make a good case this morning that this man had an incredible ministry after these verses and this episode in Mark 5. Look at verse 14 and following. Uh, I'm not going to read the text again just for the sake of time. But I want you to know this, the complete reversal of fortune for this man. Look what God has done for him in Christ. Before the man was naked, now he's clothed. Before he had been raving around and, and roaming, and now he's calm. Before he had been shouting and screaming, now he's quiet. Before he had been alone, ostracized in the tombs, now he's in the presence of others. I love this this picture of this once raving lunatic sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving instruction like a disciple. From demoniac to disciple. That's what Christ does here. And the people see this. The people in this region, 
They see the transformation of this man's life and they want Jesus to leave. They care more about the, their economic loss of property, the death of their herd, than they care about Jesus' power to reclaim this man's life. And so Jesus leaves because he only works where he's wanted. But as he leaves, as he's getting into the boat, the man comes up to him and he's like, Jesus, take me with you. What a stark contrast. Some beg Jesus to leave, and some beg to be with him. Which one are you this morning? You know, if I were to write a Hollywood ending to this story, it would be with the man leaving with Jesus. Like, that's what we want, right? Like, he gets in the boat, he's got a fresh start. He follows Jesus. He becomes one of the, the, the few close disciples. But that's not what happens, is it? Verse 19. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. And the man goes away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I love that. I want to see myself in the same way. Like, Jesus has transformed my life. What's my response? Go home. Tell everybody. If Christ has been merciful to you, that's your story. If you've experienced the mercy of God, if he's delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his son, you have a story to tell of Christ's deliverance, of his supremacy over every area of your life. That's a story that you need to verbalize and share. You need to go home, tell your friends and neighbors. Like there's a, There should be a mission response to meeting Christ. And there was in this man's life. I mean, have you ever thought about like what happens after this man goes home to this region of 10 cities, the Decapolis? Well, play along with me here for a second. We know from Mark 7.31, just a couple chapters later, that Jesus actually revisits this region. He comes back in Mark 7.31. It says that he visited the region of the Decapolis again. You know what I think he's doing? I think he's, he's following up and checking on his, his follower, his new follower, seeing how he's doing. He's seeing how the mission is going in the Decapolis region. What about after that? What about after Mark 7.31? Well, after this deliverance event uh, this man goes home, and we think, scholars think, that this man had an incredibly fruitful mission in this region. How do we know this? Well, I want to I draw your attention to one little verse in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17. In Galatians, Paul is giving us a little window into his testimony about meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, and he gives this little tidbit. He says that after uh, his, his conversion experience, uh, he goes to Arabia. He goes to Arabia. Why Arabia? Why is that detail important? Well, scholars know that that, that name, Arabia, probably refers to this, this region, this Nabataean kingdom east of the Jordan River, which included the cities of the Decapolis. 
So are you following me? So after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, he spends this time in Arabia, in these cities that the man went back to to proclaim what God had done, what Christ had done for him after he was delivered. So Paul probably wasn't escaping and fleeing to the desert, some kind of isolated, sequestered experience in Arabia. I want to suggest to you that Paul is doing what he did Later on in his missionary journeys, at the very beginning of his ministry, Paul goes to this region and he's following up with my, uh, this is a little bit speculative, but he's following up with the new followers and new churches that have formed that resulted from the demoniac's testimony. Paul is spending time with believer, believers in the Decapolis. I think that's beautiful. I don't know if that's 100% true, but I think that's probably what happened. There's this disciple-making, church-planting movement in these 10 cities following the demoniac's testimony. And the same should be for us. That's your story in Christ, is that you lead a follower to Christ. Who leads another follower to Christ? But unfortunately, our churches here in the States aren't doing so well. Doing some research for this, this sermon, and I came across a 2020 survey, a study on disciple-making in USA churches, which revealed that fewer than 5% of the churches in this country have a reproducing disciple-making culture. Fewer than 5%. How did we... How do we get to this spot? I mean, how honestly, how fruitful is our mission now? In the words of Daryl Guder, the absence of the gospel that Jesus preached in the gospel the church has preached has woefully impoverished the church's sense of missional identity. End quote. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom, his supremacy and reign and rule over all, over every power, seen and unseen. The conclusion can't be avoided. Jesus' message, the coming of the kingdom of God, which involved this fundamental struggle with and conquest of this spiritual realm of evil, is passed on to us as his followers. This is our ministry. I mean, how how is a religious way of life possible in advanced modernity like we're living in now? Only by the supernatural. Only by the supernatural. And I want to suggest to you that the reason that the demoniac had such an effective witness was because he experienced the defeat of evil in his own life. He experienced the supremacy of Christ in more than just a rational way. Back to the verse in 1 Corinthians, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The demoniac had a faith in Christ that rested in the power of God. 
See, the methodological way that we win people to Christ has implications for how the mission unfolds. And people who live in secular societies who have cobbled together all kinds of what they think are meaningful expressions of spirituality, they're ripe for syncretism, mixing Christianity and everything else. Post-conversion, if they don't experience the supremacy of Christ over every household God that they've set up in their lives. We are all idolaters. We may not have little statues of Buddha in our apartments, but we are all idolaters. Christ is supreme over all. And the mission of God in this secular society depends on you and I demonstrating Christ's supremacy over those idols. See, there's, there's, a long, there's a long history of Mark 5-like events contributing to the growth and expansion of the Christian mission. This is not just like New Testament stuff. It's not just the life of Jesus. It's only in the last 120 years that we as Western Christians have really struggled with this faulty worldview that I, I talked about a few minutes ago. I love Marvel Comics origin stories, uh, the beginnings of these superheroes. Do you know what the origin story of Christianity in Germany is? Do you know that story? It's fascinating. In 722, uh, this, this uh, Benedictine monk named Boniface shows up uh, in the, the pagan state of, uh, German state of, of Hesse, my last name, you can go to the next slide, by the way. Uh, Boniface shows up at the center of um, this town square in the city of Geismar, and what unfolds is, is a, a dramatic confrontation that's similar to Elijah confronting the Baals, the priests of Baal in 1 Kings 18. So Boniface, who was a grammarian and poet, uh, teacher in a, in a Benedictine monastery shows up and uh, he goes to the town square and he takes his trusty axe with him and he goes to this sacred oak at the center of the town and he begins hacking down the sacred oak tree, the oak of Donar. Can you imagine that? According to one of the biographers, as Boniface chops down this ancient oak tree, this great wind comes and finishes the job and blows the tree over. And the pagans, the, the German pagans who are watching this unfold when, when Boniface is not struck down and he survives the hacking down of their sacred tree, when they see that, they're like, Jesus is supreme. And the whole tribe, the whole pagan tribe gives their life to Christ. And as a, a final show of Christ's superiority, Boniface actually takes the wood from that tree and he builds a church out of it. <laughs> That's some missionary moxie right there, hacking down the sacred oak tree and building a church out of it. But what, what followed was an incredibly fruitful ministry, mission in Germany in the 700s, 800s, 900s. Germans coming to Christ. 
kingdom of God coming in power, not just rational arguments, coming in power. Christ is supreme over all. So what are you and I to do with this? Like, what does this look like for us? Because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm no Boniface. Like, I don't walk around the streets of Berlin hacking down sacred oak trees and proclaiming Christ's superiority. Like, what does this look like? What does it look like here in Eau Claire? Well, I, here's what I think it can look like. I mean, Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer that the kingdom should come. And so that's what I do in Berlin. I don't have a whole lot to go on, but I can pray that the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And I, and, and I pray for people. And I pray that, the, that Christ would be supreme over every area of life that people talk to me about. So I, w- I want to suggest to you this morning that, that, that you can do a couple things. One, if, if you're like, you know what, Eric, I, there's a worldview that I've believed about Scripture that I'm just now realizing is not good. I mean, that you need to repent of that. You need to, this morning, just say, God, give me the same worldview that Jesus has. And if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, I want to suggest to you that like, whatever meaningful spirituality you've tried to cobble together for yourself, Christ is supreme over all that. Come to him. He can deliver you from the shame that you feel. Whatever is keeping you in bondage, he's supreme over all that. And the sign of it is his victory over, the, over evil on the cross. He can do that for you. Whatever he's done for the demoniac in this text, he can do for you. It's the same God. If you're thinking about mission, I want to be on mission for Jesus. I want to be like this man who had a faithful ministry. I want to re- remind you that you are commissioned just like the demoniac. There's an invitation this morning for you to go back home, wherever home is, to your network of relationships, to proclaim and tell people about what God has done for you, his mercy that he's had on your life. I want to end with a, a story this morning of how this text gets played out or has, was played out in my own personal ministry. This is pre-pandemic, uh, before... before pandemic hit and everything shut down, I was regularly meeting with a friend uh, to pray for God's kingdom to come in Berlin, and then we'd head out on the streets to, sh- to share with people, share the gospel, and pray. And uh, so we, we finished praying, and we're asking the Holy Spirit to show us where to go. And uh, as best we can tell, God said, go to a bridge. And uh, we're like, okay, where's the, where are the bridges nearby? And so we thought of this this footbridge that spanned two neighborhoods, and underneath this, this footbridge were train tracks. And so we go to this, this bridge, and it's cold, early, you know, spring day. It's blustery. It's not a whole lot of people out. Normally, there's a lot of foot traffic on this bridge. We head out there, and there's, there's three guys standing on the bridge. And so me and my German friend, we, we engage these guys in conversation, Two of them are from the UK. The third one's German. So my German friend talks to the German guy. I talk to the, the British guys. And they, they happen to be graffiti artists. And they were actually on the bridge scouting out their next graffiti jobs. Fascinating guys. Uh, I mean, we could not have been more opposite. I mean, I'm like, 
I'm like white bread compared to these guys. They're, they're all tatted up. They, one of the, both, two of the UK guys have been in prison. And they're, they're, they're scoping out the trains. They're looking for security cameras. And uh, they, were, they were so open sharing about what they're doing. And I'm asking them about their graffiti. And they're like telling me, all, oh, yeah, see that train right there that has that so-and-so from Naples did that tagging. And like, oh, see that graffiti right there? That's, that's from a guy in Thessaloniki, Greece. Like they knew all the players. They knew, they knew the, the graffiti, the, the, the scene, and, and they would just travel from city to city, you know, tagging trains. They would get this incredible rush from doing that, and they'd go stay with friends in another city and do the same thing over and over. And so I'm, I'm talking to these guys, and, uh, you know, they're, they're like, you know, I asked one of the guys about tattoo on his neck, and he pulls down his shirt, and he's the tattoo of a shank, a prison shank. He's like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, I had that on, uh, tattooed on my neck because when I was in prison, like, that's what you use to kill someone in, the, in prison. I mean, these are hard guys. Another guy pulls, after the shank story, tries a, a story of, like, one-upsmanship, pulls down his jacket. He's got a cross right He's like, that's not where Jesus died. That's, like, for the knife when someone tries to kill me, that I give them a spot. They can actually hit it easier. And the three Three of us are just standing on this bridge, and for 45 minutes, they're sharing about graffiti, and I'm talking about Christ, and they were so open. And they're asking questions like, you know, what, is, what does God think about weed? Like, what's God's impressions on smoking pot? And they're asking deeper theological questions. You know, what, 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 is, what about evil in this world? How do you explain that? And we just spent 45 minutes talking, and at the end of this, I said, you know what, can I pray for you guys? And uh, they said, yeah. Before we prayed, they asked me to paint with them. Eric, do you want to paint with us? And they pull out their paints right then and there. And so on the, on the railing of this bridge, I drew an ichthus, a fish. And I explained to them what it means. I said, this is a symbol. It means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And one of the other guys in yellow tattooed his name, his tattooed, he graffitied his name next to my fish. And, and then I laid hands on these guys and I prayed. And I, I did the only thing that I knew how to do. I, I prayed that they would experience and know that God is real right then and there. And I asked for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. I finished praying for these guys, and they were in tears. The little guy with the shank on his tattooed on his neck, he's like, what's going on? Like, what's, what's happening? He's like, I'm about to cry. It feels like God's here. They, they were so shaken by the power and presence of God through Christ in that moment that they ignored me, and they started talking with each other about whether or not they should ditch their nomadic life of tagging trains in order to follow Christ. Unfortunately, some begged Jesus to leave and depart, and others begged to be with him. They chose for Jesus to depart. They didn't give their lives to Christ, but you know what? They could not deny God's presence. His power. So all, all of this, it doesn't 
have to necessarily look like what Jesus describes in this text. But if you allow yourself to be an agent of the kingdom, God can do incredibly amazing things through the power and authority of Christ through you to further the mission and fame of Jesus' name among the nations. Can I pray for you as we end our time? And worship team, you can come on back up. Father, I thank you for this text this morning. Father, I ask that you'd help us to sit in this uncomfortableness we feel about this invasion of your kingdom in our lives. But God, I thank you that you're real and that the supremacy of your son doesn't just extend to our beliefs in our head, but over every area of life. Father, I thank you that you have dethroned the idols of my heart through Christ, that you have, you have nailed to the cross everything. And through the death and resurrection of your son, you have demonstrated the son's superiority over all. Father, we want to have the same worldview as Jesus. We want to be faithful and effective on mission with your son. God, forgive us for seeing, for, for seeing this world differently than the way your son saw it. God, we ask that you would demonstrate your power and authority over our life and our idols now. Dethrone those idols now. Deliver us from that shame now, the bondage that we're experiencing now. Free us to be kingdom agents, unhindered, unencumbered, running freely toward your son. Give us a bold witness to point others to the Savior, to point to the fame and glory of the name of Christ. Father, empower our witness by your Spirit. May, may the Bridge Church be known as a church that makes disciples who make disciples who make disciples. May the presence of God be here. May the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, you're so good. Thank you for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your Son in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. Amen.